Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our show. We'll be getting to your questions in just a moment so go ahead and get them into the chat window and uh, we have a few left over from last month we didn't have a chance to get answer to and we'll just go ahead and start off with those. Uh, reading the questions off to me as usual of late is my wife Sarah. Thank you Isaac. The first question we had from last month was Mylon Janik and he says, Isaac Arthur, sorry I missed this month's video stream. What do you think how big space is around planet Earth that we can confidently say that has no space-faring technological civilizations. Thanks, and I love your channel. I guess it kind of depends what you mean by confident. Um, where everything with Fermi Paradox is concerned, we usually say uh, we have no idea of what the actual answer is yet, none of them really fit well, but if we're going kind of with the Dyson Dilemma notion that civilizations will expand to the point that they pretty much take over an entire galaxy and, and utilize all the stars in that area, that we're not seeing any within you know, a billion light years of us doing that would tend to imply that we're not going to see any much further away in that either because they wouldn't be around yet if the universe is much younger, two billion light years away and the light from them is two billion years ago. I usually say half a billion to about a billion light years and we can say confidently is not exhibiting any signs of that thus far. And again, since we have a much widening volume of space before that we go out, even though those more recent civilizations from, say, half a billion light years away or two million light years away would be more recent, easier for us to see, and presumably order, um, the fact that you're going out so much further and getting so much new stars and galaxies when you go out twice as far away just kind of statistically works out to make it very improbable that there'd be ones further out that were just a little bit older. Thank you. We also have a question from Gregor Samsa. My apologies if this has been discussed elsewhere on the channel. Could dark matter or energy be a solution to the Fermi Paradox? Could it be that advanced knowledge of physics leads to technology and or materials that appears to us as dark energy or matter? Um, it's very probable that since dark matter is the majority of the matter in the universe that that's going to be high on everyone's list to make use of, um, though you wouldn't see any reason why they wouldn't make use of other matter while they're at it. The issue is that we can look back in time to see dark matter. We can only see dark matter based on its effect on things gravitationally. And it seems like, based on our current theories, it actually was part of the formation of the various galaxies. But either way, you can look 13 billion light years away, where the light is 13 billion years old and the universe was only 700 million years at that point, and say there is the clear effect of dark matter in play. And that would seem like that would be way too soon for any civilization like ours to have potentially have done anything with that at that point in time. So dark matter is probably a very great interest to advanced civilizations, but it wouldn't be what dark matter actually is to us. So jumping into questions from today, we have divide by zero get cake. 
Could you see a type two civilization intentionally creating a black dwarf to study it? Um, you know, when you get around to what a black dwarf is, which is a white dwarf that's just cooled off, um, those could be produced artificially, but it's still a very time-consuming process. I don't think they'd find all that interesting. Um, with a white dwarf, white dwarfs are what are left over when you're done with a normal star. The most stars will end up as a white dwarf eventually. Only about one in a hundred ends up as a neutron star, and one in a million is a black hole. Uh, in fact, that one in a hundred for a neutron star is probably high too. Um, everything else ends up as a white dwarf. And it's not burning anymore. At that point in time, it's just cooling off, but it's very hot, so it takes billions of years to cool down to the point where you wouldn't see it giving off a visible glow. That's where it starts getting into the black dwarf territory, although that's a debatable point. Some would say it's a black dwarf when it no longer gives off visible light, just infrared. Others would say it's when it's cooled down to about the temperature of the ambient temperature of the universe. Um, and trying to cool off big objects like that faster than nature would allow by just radiation can certainly be done. It's just, I'm not sure what they'd be looking to get out of that information, per se. Um, could they have done it? Yeah, there are white dwarfs all over the place, and uh, once you get down to a reasonable temperature, you can start cooling them manually, but uh, I don't know if they would have. Um, I don't actually have the control of the questions on the... Oh, just uh, use the mouse there. It's not working. It's not? Nope. So okay. I'll ask you a question, but uh -huh. I might be jumping over some. Uh, Matthew Campbell says, a bit of a silly question, but if we suddenly discovered a way to clone dinosaurs, would we expect them or modified dinosaurs to be weaponized like in Jurassic Park? Uh, you know, there's, there's many Matt Campbells in my life. I used to have a roommate who was one, another was an editor for the show, and I'm guessing it is the latter who just asked that question, since that sounds like something Matt would ask. Um, would we weaponize dinosaurs if we could make dinosaurs? I don't know, but it sounds fun. <laughs> right, wow, Tyrannosaurus Rex has got Gatling guns on the side of it. Um, I could imagine that we might, but uh, I'm not really certain what the utility of it would be other than the rule of cool. So if you can make dinosaurs, you probably would weaponize them. And again, a Tyrannosaurus Rex is already pretty weaponized by its very nature. <laughs> Okay, I've got the use of this back. It says, Jonathan, could you use an AI-controlled disco ball to extend the effective range of laser weapons in space? I, I don't really think a disco ball in of itself would, would really assist, the, uh, assist that too much. You mean if you put a mirror out there that you could bounce it off the mirror to, to change the angle? Um, yes. Um, I think the way you would do that is you'd have a mirror that was reasonably mobile and could get signals. And so you'd pulse out for it to change the direction with the force, you know, a blast of the, of the laser, and the laser would follow behind as it was rotating into place. Um, I suppose you could do a disco ball setup for that. Um, I, I don't know that you necessarily would, uh, unless you were really into 70s music. I personally um, hope that everything involving the 70s stays in the 1970s and does not see any sort of revival. There's very little of quality uh, from the 70s in terms of fashion that we need to need to be bringing back, I think. <laughs> Arter Renato, BB. What are your thoughts on increasingly available semi-classical computation methods available commercially? For example, photonic or spintronic circuits? Uh, photonic circuits, optical computing in general is, um, well, I guess it depends on how small you can make your diodes. Um, it's got some applications to be sure. It's not my area of expertise, so I'm gonna limit what I say on that. But we do see some things besides semiconductors as, as ways to do computation. We even talked about using mechanical ones that are made out of very tiny amounts of like nanorods or graphene. 
Um, there would be some applications where those would probably be much better, uh, especially certain things where they shake around a lot. It helps to not be too dependent on something that's going to shake, like your solid state technology. But I'm not really expert enough to be able to give you too many details on what its applications are going to be. The K2 Despot. Dear Isaac, if or when we create a universal assembler, what further innovations in maturing manufacturing nanotechnology is possible beyond that, or is that as far as we can go under known science? So that's a fun username. A K2 Despot presumably means somebody rules over an entire Dyson sphere or Dyson swarm, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which again typically would have more of a population in it than the typical galactic empire we see in science fiction. Uh, um, Manufacturing with 3D printing shows a lot of ability to be able to rapidly prototype things as well as create some devices that we really couldn't create on an industrial, you know, typical line production anyway. As to universal assemblers, this is kind of the same notion. Very rarely will 3D printing ever produce something faster than line assembly, classic manufacturing would. And you can bet that universal assemblers will be the same way. We have this image from sci-fi of the little gray goo things rapidly swarming over things and change them into more themselves as fast as, uh, you know, as fast as a puddle of water spills. This is not how that would work. It's a slow process. The smaller you go, the slower it probably tends to go in some degrees too. Um, but in terms of its major manufacturing assets, it's very like the 3D printing that allows you to do stuff very intricately. It also allows you to do stuff at the self-replicating level. We see the tiny little machines as self-replicating because there's no other way you could really have them. You're not going to mass print a trillion of them, right? Uh, the individual mill with somebody working there with a magnifying glass and a little poke hole putting together a little tiny robot. But at the end of the day, they are just a clanking self-replicator. And they will never be as efficient as a bigger one in terms of how fast they can put stuff out. Um, that's putting out bigger copies of itself. So assume that all manufacturing at the atomic or molecular level is just way slower. But if it's self-replicating, it doesn't really matter if it's slow. You just get the job done. And that is ultimately the big one. They are, to me, it's, you got that whole biological angle. You can put the little nanorobots into people where we really can't do a lot of stuff on people right now. But you can also start creating your self-repairing technology. That's the really nice one. That's where you start having the computer that's capable of a self-upgrade when it gets the patch update, not just with software, but it's hardware. That's where you start getting the, you know, the, Walls of the house that never need to be cleaned or repainted because they just get cleaned and repainted by the little nano robots every day. Um, same for roads, cars, all sorts of things. So really durable technology in the sense of self-healing technology is to me probably the biggest advantage of that stuff in terms of commercial applications. Thank you. The next question is from Albert Jackinson. What would be the effects of advanced AR, VR, nanotechnology, BCIs, and cybernetics on society? On a related note, would there be anywhere for interfaces to go after advanced AR and VR? Okay, so we have the acronym problem we always have in anything else in life. Uh, for those who don't know, VR, of course, is virtual technology. AR is augmented reality. Uh, sorry, VR is virtual reality. AR is augmented reality. And BCI is brain-computer interface, uh, or MMI, mind-machine interface, take your pick. Um, augmented reality, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of like your heads-up displays. It would be the notion that as you're walking through a crowd of people um, right into your vision, you're going to see a, a lame tag appear above their heads as uh, Sarah or Fowler Arthur or something, right? You just pop up next to their head or similar things like that where you're still walking around in normal reality. There's no change to the reality around you. You're just augmenting it with little add-ons. Say as you're wearing like a pair of glasses, small glasses or things like that, only presumably more advanced technology on that would be to the point where 
you're trying to fix something uh, and the blueprint for it shows up over top of it. Or you can just pull up the little video in the corner of your eye that's going to walk you through it. Uh, and the more augmented reality you get, the more it just seamlessly fits on top of the reality you're in. Again, with examples like that, where it might be putting up the subtitles of someone speaking to you in a different language. Or, because it's not just visual, it might just be translating what they say, as they say it in the real, and really advanced augmented reality, where you're sitting there talking to someone, would change their lip speed for you. It would just blow that so that you know, now you're seeing them talk as though they were normally talking in English, for instance, if they were speaking in French, and it does the full translation audio and the visual part of changing the lips around to fit the symbols and sounds they're making. So that would be very high-tech augmented reality, and that's kind of what that uh, would be a good example of how that would be used. Um, so on the other question, and that would be a good example of how that would fit into society too at a day-to-day level. That's your smartphone application people just don't expect. Um, that very casual way of just accessing information. Was there, uh, would there question. be anywhere for interfaces to go after advanced AR and VR? Uh, there's a lot, so much we could potentially improve that on. I mean, you have to start adding things like smells, taste, touch, but uh, unless you start rewiring the brain to have uh, augmented senses itself, like where you can see infrared or you can see ultraviolet or you could smell touch, right? Or you could uh, smell um, gamma radiation or you just had a much higher resolution of your eyeballs. Unless you start augmenting the human brain uh, with BCIs or things like that, you are kind of maxed out once you get your augmented reality or your virtual reality up to the same resolution in all five senses that we experience day-to-day life in. For instance, the human eyeball has about 20,000 pixels across uh, as its uh, resolution. We're not quite there yet, even with 8K, obviously. We have a question from G4R0S. What kind of science disciplines do you expect to see in the near future? Will science itself change? I mean, I guess science is always changing to some degree, but the ground principles should not change. And uh, sadly, they sometimes do get a little bit changed these days in application. The scientific principle is about gathering evidence for experimentation to conform a theory and to uh, always present it as a falsifiable one. I don't see a lot of room for that one to change or advance, but individual techniques for performing it could. Um, As for new scientific disciplines, cognitive science is going to keep expanding, no surprise there. Um, And that should widen out as few to the point where it's likely to to be um, multidisciplinary itself. We already have, for instance, psychology or neurology as separate fields. I think you're probably going to see that whole area kind of remerge and separate out into new disciplines at some point in time. They might keep the same names, but you'll have a lot of cross-training into it. Um, Zero-gravity engineering would probably be a, a scientific discipline we should start to expect seeing in our two distant future, or low-gravity engineering. Uh, beyond that, I mean, computation and ecology, biology, genetics, those will be areas that continue to improve. Medicine, too. You'll see more disciplines coming out of those. We learn more things that we can make disciplines out of. The baka that choose, star lifting the sun would make it live longer, but would it cause Earth to become tidally locked and change orbit? Given enough time, the Earth would tidally lock, but it's very easy to prevent a planet from tidally locking if you're engaging in levels of engineering that you do for star lifting. Um, there's nothing specific about star lifting that would cause a planet to tidally lock. Um, tidal locking, again, is a very slow process that basically... Um, I think we did an episode on tidal locking way back, but picture a wheel that you've kind of pushed on a little bit so it's a little bit lopsided and it's, it's wider on one side and is narrow that's kind of pointing towards the main object it's, it's, it's advancing towards, like, you know, like that. Here's the Earth. Uh, the thing is that because it's spinning, 
the lump has to settle back down to place as it's constantly pulling off the top, but that lump is slightly cocked off to an angle. The peak of your lump is not actually pointing at or on the moon, for instance, or a non-time-like object. And so that pulls it just a little bit from that angle towards the planet, and that causes a very slow breaking force. We did do an episode on that tidal locking, I think it was like episode six, so way back there, uh, if you want to get a little bit more details on that. But that is the process of tidal locking, and I can't think of any reason why star lifting specifically would, would play into that. But again, the process is so slow for something like Earth, again, it's billions of years, it hasn't happened yet, that you can easily apply a little bit of force uh, way beneath the threshold of what would be involved in star lifting to keep it spinning if for some reason you've extended the star's life to the point that Earth has time to slow down to be tidal locked, which at last estimate I think was 40 billion years to tidally lock, or that might have been the Earth tidally locked to the moon. Here's a question I presume not from the presidential candidate, but from someone uh, that is going by the name Bernie Sanders. What future application can you see for gravitational lensing, especially for space telescopes? Could it be potentially done artificially? Yes, though you, you might want to ask if you really would want to be using all that mass to, uh, to just make a lens since you have to fly out there to do it. Um, any place you're making a big gravitational lens, uh, you could just go put a telescope there, much easier than building like a black hole to be making that gravitational lens. What you're mostly doing with gravitational lensing is trying to find existing objects, black holes, galactic disks, dark matter spots around galaxies, the halos, that allow a very good amount of natural gravitational lensing. So I don't think that's really one you'd be using artificially too much. But if you were building great big black holes for your civilization, for instance, you might go ahead and start using those for the additional purpose of uh, amplifying signals between various ones, using the gravitational lensing to enhance transmission. We have a super chat from Archanger. Given your, one of your recent episodes, do you think it unlikely that we will max out a Dyson Swarm with rung worlds of McKendry cylinders? Um, well, the, the rung world, for everybody who's not familiar with that idea, is very similar to the ring world in that it's a big thing you build around the sun, but whereas the ring world produces gravity by spinning around very quickly, same as in your O'Neill cylinder, uh, it just spins around the sun, um, and that requires insanely high tensile strengths beyond anything we could potentially make. The wrong world goes much cheaper on the end of that. It basically is just a whole bunch of cylinders in a tight orbit, uh, positioned, you know, like, the, like a long ladder that you wrapped around the sun. And they're spinning around their own axis just normally, but you can go around that uh, tube that connecting as the wrong world. Um, that is one of the ways to make really big interconnected structures that have gravity individually. And uh, in fact, you can put gravity inside the spinning rung ladder edges as well if you want. Um, I do think that would be probably the primary one used for habitation, large ones, because that lets you stitch so many of them together. But there is such an investment of connection on that. You know, even a small rung wall that's only taking up, you know, a couple hundred miles of up and down distance, uh, that's still going to have a population of quadrillions on it who all have to live in a unified hole that has to be content with each other. So, and you start getting the bigger rung wards like you make out of McKendry cylinder, you're now talking about something that would have a quintillion people on it. And they all have to agree to some sort of standard there, whereas with a normal Dyson, all you really have to agree to is orbital clearance. The next question is from James Smith. Is a civilization that expands on an interstellar level an ex existential. Yes, an existential risk to itself in the same way that independent colonies broke away from one another? I think so. Uh, and that is one of your Fermi paradox solutions that's a late filter for why you don't have big expansion. 
depending on your attitude and your type of government, you might say, well, look, um, we can't realistically govern Alpha Centauri or, or you know, Tau Yodani, Tau Epsilon Yodani, etc. We can't um, Tau Seti and Epsilon Yodani. Anyway, we can't govern these star systems that are 10, 20 light years away from us. And we might be able to get resources from them for a while, but we don't really have too much to trade them. We maybe can send them information and they'll send us raw materials, but we don't really need them in any useful way, and they could become a threat to us. And especially if you're colonizing out as a sphere all around you, um, you could potentially be seeding yourself with you know, dotal colonies who could choke you off. They could just prevent anyone from getting to you from more distant colonies. And uh, it kind of depends on your outlook on life and governance. If you had have reason to think that people who escaped your rule did not want to uh, be friendly with you, <laughs> you might be very unlikely to want to create such colonies as to be in a much better condition to escape your rule. So again, it, it mostly depends on the civilization. And it isn't necessarily automatically a, a tyrannic despotism either. You might, as we discussed in some of the uh, Machine Rebellion type episodes, just be so worried that you couldn't maintain control over dangerous technologies on some distant and, and very independent and sparsely populated colony ward that you might say it's just too risky. And so you really don't make use of, of expansion colonially because it turns out to be too much of a hassle or concern, especially if you're worried you're going to see the enemies out there. We have a question from Don Juan. What's your opinion on Neutral Link, Starlink, and the potential combination of the two? Um, if, if there's a Neutral Link, I'm, I'm not sure of it. I'm thinking you might mean Neuralink, but uh, Neuralink and Starlink wouldn't really seem like they'd be in combination either. So if there is something called Neutral Link, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with it, and someone's going to have to have to let me know what that is. Uh, Starlink is more about astronomy, and Neuralink is more about um, brain augmentation. I can see how you might combine the two, but they wouldn't seem like natural uh, natural combinations or any space-based in, uh, internet for the same matter. It's obviously nice to be able to do better internet, but there's nothing really changing your architecture between whether it's orbiting in space or it's down on the ground. We have a question from Moses Pippinger. Mm -hmm. You often talk about dismantling the solar system, but what about preservation of the beauty of bodies like Jupiter and Saturn? Will they become universal parks? Possibly. Um, in the end, the sun's got more mass than, than the whole rest of the solar system together. 99.8%, right? Uh, two by every thousand atoms is not part of the sun in the solar system. And yet there are billions of other stars and planets out there in the galaxy that we might decide are more fun to take part. The thing I want to ask you is, uh, when was the last time you looked at Jupiter? To which the answer is, never. You need a pair of binoculars or a telescope to see this any more than a dot, right? Um, the great red spot is bigger than Earth. You might say, where should we preserve the great red spot? Well, the amount of gas and matter that's inside there could easily support quadrillions of people. So then the question becomes, and this is obviously a subjective answer, you can't really say, at what point in time does this very nice looking thing uh, that is not alive uh, become viewed as less valuable than the potential to support potentially billions of people or trillions of people, or in the case of something like Jupiter, quintillions of people. And that just depends on your civilization's outlook and capability. And I suspect that would change over time. The thing is, since you can make the argument for me, there's not really an absolute right or wrong. If you're talking about millions of years going by, views will change. And you know, if this year people say, no, we have to keep Jupiter, and next year they say, no, we have to keep Jupiter, do they still say no 500 years from now? 500,000 years from now? Do they say no every year? Because the moment they don't say no that one time, then the thing is going to be used. And they can change their mind later on, but they ain't likely to put it back together again. 
So I don't think we'd be very likely to preserve planets. Uh, now, Earth is a bit of a different story. Earth is not a planet. Earth is the center of our civilization, our both world. That's a very different kind of premise there. So I think you could see Earth getting preserved, maybe an early Mars or Moon base, because they might be well established before we ever got to that point. But I don't think you see that applying to all the gas giants. I certainly don't think it would apply to all the other planets in the galaxy. There are billions of times more stuff than our solar system has around it for us to grab. So we might say, yes, preserve the entire solar system, but we're going to eat the whole galaxy. <laughs> I think you're kind of jumping into the next question from James Smith. Could we ever view starlifting as unecological in the same way we view expand, expending natural resources on Earth in the modern era? Um, well, mind you, we never consider expanding resources on Earth unecological. We speak of a specific way in which we do it to be that, right? Um, rare Earths, for instance. Common misconception that rare Earths are rare. They are absolutely not rare. They are all over the place. Uh, you can mine them anywhere you want and profitably, so long as you don't mind doing it very unecologically. And of course, one of the things that's produced when you're mining rare Earths is thorium tellings, radioactive thorium tellings, and uh, if you had a thorium-based economy, you might decide that that's perfectly fine and useful and not unecological anymore. Your technology controls what's unecological, so your methods control what's unecological. Um, there is no ecology off our planet, though. Star lifting, you know, the only thing the sun gives us, you can make a, a, an argument for solar wind and radiation to some degree, but what the sun gives us is light. Um, and, and light has no provenance. If you're doing it with giant lamps in the same spectrum, it's the same thing. I don't think there's any nature to preserve on the sun. So people might have different views, but I can't see it just translating over as easily because we have forests, we have parks here for a reason. They're interesting, beautiful things. Well, the sun is beautiful too, but it's not alive. There's nothing to preserve there ecologically. It's a big, hot, boring mass. That's what's pretty about it. Starlifting doesn't change that. It actually maybe just makes it a little bit hotter. Zelkotovic says, Hi Isaac, <clears throat> greetings from Serbia. I have a question. What do you think of using a huge railgun to launch interstellar probes? I think it's a great idea. Um, problem with a huge railgun is you have to have a huge long grail barrel, and um, that's one of the reasons why laser proportion light sails is probably preferable. But you could actually do that, you know, with a railgun too. The question with anything involving rail is, what are you using as the actual rail? Because you can't have things touching at a very high velocities. And what are you using as the propellant? Is it electricity, or are you shoving it there with a gas propellant, or electromagnetically, or are you just pushing it with a light beam? Um, I don't think that you would bother in most cases to actually have the long rail pass maybe a few thousand kilometers of your initial push. It would probably try to be more efficient to get up to several kilometers a second. But after that, have it expand a sail out and just push it from behind with a laser beam. You know, that just seems easier, or a particle beam and a combination of the two. So I don't think you'd use it for interstellar probes other than as a kind of a quick jump start like we often see with uh, short runways on aircraft carriers. Jonathan says, which scientific inaccuracy annoys you the most when you see it in sci-fi? Scale, um, which is a pretty big uh, one. There's always a thing that sci-fi authors have no sense of scale. Um, what gets me is you have these empires that, uh, you know, like the Star Trek Federation. I think they've gotten a little bit better about it nowadays. They have better special effects, but they used to have like 40 ships in the star fleet of hundreds of worlds. And they have antimatter engines and fusion and uh, really advanced computers, and they can only build 40 ships. And they only seem to have a population of like a billion people per planet, even though they can literally replicate food out of nothing. Um, that's the kind of was not paying attention to the implications of the technology when we did it, you know. Scale uh, is always the mistake sci-fi authors make. 
the biggest one in terms of science, they always make, you know, I don't get bothered by artificial gravity. That's a conceit to filming. I don't get bothered by them not walking around with helmets on because you can't see the actors' faces and most of them act, you know, very expressively. So you take that off as a concession. You know, it's, we say, a suspension of disbelief. It's a reasonable break with reality. I don't mind that there are noises when they are they're doing uh, space battles because it is, again, that's there for the audience. Um, I would not even be surprised if ships had a tendency to make little boom or, or explosion noises to, to just help people keep track of what was going on. It's an odd toy, you know, face. Same as they might zoom up so they have a ship like one kilometer away from them that they're shooting at, even though it's actually a million kilometers away, just because it might be easier for the mind to handle. Um, but... I'd say that is ultimately the big one, scale. Mm -hmm. We'd like to thank Super Chat Cedarth, and he has a question. Top five industries or technologies, according to you, that will revolutionize the world by 2050. And thank you for the amazing videos. Thank you. Um, top five technologies by 2050. Uh, yeah, I think we actually did a video on that. Uh, it was with Kapolsky at the time. They, they were going around asking a bunch of futurists what they are, what they are big technology for 2050, and I decided to go ahead and do that. Um, Let's see. Uh, clanking self-replicators. I think inside the next uh, next 20 years, we probably get a clanking self-replicator. And uh, then um, uh, really good voice interfaces for computer technology in terms of interfaces and AI. Um, cheap, reliable, energy-efficient power, whether it's, it's ground-based solar, space-based solar, fusion, People finally say, hey, we're okay with fission, uh, just way better batteries. That means we can use any power source and store it better, something like that. Um, better automation production. Uh, and then distribution. Uh, it, it's so easy to forget about that. So much of what we do, like power, uh, better resistors in the wires, half our power is wasted on lines. Half our fuel is wasted moving stuff around, things like that. Better distribution, smarter distribution at most. So. Uh, we'll take one more question before we go to break. Light pause heard. How far away do you think we are from having VR interface with probe that we send to other planets and using VR to control the rovers and exploration devices? 20 light minutes. I mean, um, we could do a probe on the moon that was being controlled by us, but we have no reason to set a humanoid probe, so the VR interface is a little bit less useful. Um, and then how far away from Mars? Well, you can't do a virtual reality interface from Mars to here because you've got 20 minute lag time. Four minutes, I think, is the best time you get. Um, maybe if you were in orbit around Mars or things like that, you know, doing a probe on Venus while you were in orbit and it was down on the scorching on ground. Uh, virtual reality could be very useful for probes, but not for probes from Earth to there, except a very, very limited sense. So. Um, that technology will come around and may be very helpful on the moon, may be very helpful in the bottom of the ocean or dangerous places, but it's not really good for interstellar, well, it's no use for interstellar pose, but not very good for interplanetary pose either. Uh, we'll go ahead and go to break. We'll be back in a few minutes. So we'll be taking a quick break if you want to grab a drink and a snack, and it's also a good time to get more questions into the chat for our moderators. If you didn't already know, there's a few moderators who keep an eye on the chat window, both for good questions to relay, and troll and robot hunting, as I can't juggle that and running the production and answering your questions all at the same time. Though I do come back and watch the chat afterwards. I can't actually reply to the chat once the live stream is over though, so if I don't get asked your question, just paste in the comments below and I usually get those answered the evening or day after the live stream. 
even juggling reading the questions off when the mods relay them to me was getting a bit tricky and so now we have someone reading them off to me, which I think makes for a better production but certainly makes it easier for me to do. And if you didn't already know, the person reading the questions off that the moderators picked is my wife Sarah, and she does double duty as the director for the live stream since she has a lot more live public speaking experience than me and is much better at it. So it was often sending me hand cues like slow down, look at the camera, and get on with it, as doing a live production with on-the-fly answers to often complex questions tends to take up all my focus and concentration. I also mentioned our moderators and I wanted to give them a quick thanks, especially Alexander Sindri Long, who handles most of the technical side of getting those questions to me, and is also the principal administrator of our Discord server, which like the rest of the show's social media is linked in the episode descriptions. We often used to do an after hour session following the live stream over on the voice chat on Discord, and for those who used to go and were wondering, yes we will get back to doing that before much longer, but I wanted to get the adaptations to the live stream that we've adopted since I moved to the new studio handled before adding that feature back in. We do have a lot of minor additions to the channel that have been under works or slow rollout, like early releasing the episodes without ads or sponsors on our Nebula streaming service, and many of those new features got a bit delayed by my wedding and settling into the new household and studio, and I think a bit more appearances on camera during the episode will be one of those. I still get a bit surprised after 20 live streams, a bunch of interviews, and having always had my photo up on social media and even on screen way back in episode 1, how often folks comment on being surprised to see the man behind the voice on the show. So popping in on camera more often in the episodes, maybe to read off the schedule and announcements, might be one of those things we start doing at some point. Speaking of the schedule, if you missed any of the summer 2020 episodes, on June 18th we had Space Place to look at how crime and law enforcement might change in the future, then we took a look at Graphene, the super strong material that offers so many potential new technologies and devices and structures, like giant space habitats and the week after that we had a look at some of those content-sized megastructures you might be able to build with graphene. Then we contemplated what life might be like as a disembodied brain in a jar, before considering our destiny as an interplanetary species, or in part 1, the first steps to it. Then we returned to the megastructure series to ask how we could get all the material to build tons of continent-sized megastructures in Let's Dismantle the Solar System. And lastly we had another look at the Fermi Paradox, to ask if all the giant cosmic voids or disappearing and flickering stars might indicate giant and ancient civilizations were already out there, long since become interplanetary and even interstellar species. We're still not done with July though and we'll be back Thursday July 30th for a fun dip into science fiction to contemplate the idea of techno-barbarians, folks living at a time of advanced technology they no longer fully understand, and primitive technology at the same time and we'll ask how realistic and possible that might actually be for the future of humanity. That will take us into August, and you can see the upcoming episodes for August on the screen during the live stream, popping up in the upper left hand corner of the screen. As a last note, we're closing in on the show's 6th anniversary at the end of the summer, and our 250th regular episode, not including bonus episodes and extras, will also be our first episode of August, covering superconductivity. And I want to thank everyone for joining us every week, and whether this is your first time watching or you go back to the old days, whether you're a donor and a patron of the show, or just hit the like or share button from time to time, thanks for helping make SFIA the success it is. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Next question. The next question is from ASN Acapella. How far in the future would you guess you'd have to be dropped to be absolutely unable to use anything? I'm going to assume that's in the context of how far in the future would you have to be before you just couldn't use any of the technology and feel completely out of it. 
Uh, like if you drop a caveman into modern society, can he do anything? Um, and of course, there's kind of a time element there on how long would you be useless. The flip side of that, though, is that kind of the idea behind technology is to make it simpler and easier to use. And a lot of children are pretty capable of using technology when they're four or five years old. And while kids' heads are like sponges, you'll never buy the idea that kids learn faster than adults. It's what they learn faster. Kids can pick up raw information faster, data, that kind of thing. But adults are usually better at sorting it out. So you might find that you uh, pop in the future and it only takes you a couple of weeks to get really used to using technology. On the other hand, if you have life extension and you've had massive augmentation of everyone's intelligence, so everyone's walking around smaller than Einstein and living for thousands of years, the technology might be really complicated because it never caused them to dumb it down because to them it's so easy to just go ahead and uh, you know flip this switch, that one there, this one there, it's sort of like 500 key sequence, what's fun doing a 500 key sequence, you know? That might be kind of case, and that could be within a century, it could be within a thousand years. So it just depends on how technology goes. We have a super chat from Plastic Pinocchio. Hi, Isaac. Do you think it's likely that in far future we will become a post-scarcity anarcho-socialist society much like Ian Banks' The Culture? Okay. Um, for those of you who don't know, the cultural series by Ian M. Banks, the late great author, uh, is kind of viewed as, as a much more high-tech version of the Star Trek Federation. Um, they... Well, let's see. They only have one law you can't break, which you can't read people's minds, basically. Um, there's almost no way to actually break laws there as a result of it. But it's a post-scarcity civilization, so I wouldn't like characterize it as anarcho-capitalist or anarcho-socialist, because either one might apply. It's more of, um, again, post-scarcity civilizations where if you can provide everybody everything they want with the flip of a, a switch that easily then you don't really need a lot of the core production things. And, and your, your basic concept of socialism is control of the production resources. I don't know that you really have anyone controlling those in the cultural because anybody can get their hands on a replicator, a Star Trek-style replicator. Uh, that's actually fairly low-tech by cultural standards. Um, but uh, I don't think that you'd have exactly a payload to that because... That one is, is used a lot of clock tech, as we would say. It's, it's assuming really high speed, fast from light travel. It's assuming basically infinite access to energy. Um, we tend to take the attitude that a post-scarcity civilization, the way we define it in on this channel, is a decrease or absence of anxiety over um, basic needs. Like, I don't really worry about where my next breath is coming from, where my next glass of water is coming from, or really where my next meal is coming from. Uh, it's not a source of major anxiety to me. And uh, we would just keep kind of going up Maslow's hierarchy of needs to things like I'm not worried about my, you know, any number of other survival traits, security, things like that. And that's usually how we define post-scarcity on the channel because in a finite universe, in an energy-conserving universe, you can't have the classic post-scarcity, which is just an infinite supply of everything. Plus, you have to have things like, uh, you know, there's a finite amount of prestige. Only one person can be the number one bestseller of books that year, that kind of thing. So there is still scarcity in those kind of setups. We would say that there is a minimization of anxiety about the access to resources and that it is a justified uh, decrease in anxiety as opposed to what we call a post-discontent society, which uh, kind of that term was coined by Matthew Campbell, again, one of our editors who asked a question earlier. Post-discontent society is one where it's not post-scarcity, but people aren't worried about where things are coming from because we've got them brainwashed or hopped up on drugs or things like that. So post-scarcity and post-discontent vary in that one is a genuine decrease in, in, in anxiety about where your resources are coming from. 
as to when we would have something like that, again, depending on how you're defining it. I would say that we're kind of already there, except that we don't have renewable resources, and it's kind of limited just to a few areas right now, uh, and even then often just to certain social economic tiers. Um, I would say within 50 years, if we get a renewable source of power that we can really rely on for large output, and if we get slightly better automation than we have right now for production, that would be the point at which we'd be post-scarcity. And again, there are levels of post-scarcity, obviously. The next question is from Vincent Walden Rivera. When do you think life extension will happen? Um, several thousand years ago. Um, life extension technology, as we say, they are uh, on an episode on life extension or the science of aging. Um, there's a quote I like to steal from Aubrey de Grey that he said to me one time, uh, and I, think, I assume he says it to other people too, but uh, we were talking and he said, the key thing to always convey to people about life extension is that all medicine is life extension. And this is the mistake a lot of people make on this. There are probably certain medical advances that would really increase lifespan, but for the most part, every little thing we do is increasing lifespan. There's not a switch to flip that just makes people live forever, other than the use of something like self-replicating nanobots that could just repair everything. Um, when we talk about life extension, we're saying how much longer do people live on average, and, and is the quality of living going up with that? Because we're talking about extending life, not simply extending existence, right? Um, if you are healthy, if you're younger and you make it to a longer age, well, you only have to look at photographs from the 1800s to see, you know, this person there that looks like they're 70 years old and it turns out they're 45. We live longer, we live healthier on average. That keeps going up. We did have a small downtick in it for the first time in a long time last decade, but uh, for the most part, it's been going up like the stock market, mostly up. So all life extension technology, all medicine is life extension technology, and I think we'll see a very big increase in that in the next century. Lori asks, what would change in near future when we get unlimited energy soon? Let's say we get fusion reactors working today. We should always keep in mind that just because you get a fusion reactor does not mean that all energy is suddenly free. A big cost of all chunk is employing people at the facility uh, and um, you know having all those lines, keeping all those uh, lines in place. Uh, we were driving into town the other day and along the lake here. They had a bunch of electric poles they were replacing with new electric poles. It was quite an operation. And it's so easy to forget because they're there all the time that those are pretty expensive to build and maintain. Um, the big difference is you no longer have a fuel requirement uh, in terms of an expensive fuel. Now, the big change is exactly that. Even if your fusion reactor costs you a little bit more dollars per watt, you still use it because there is an infinite supply of that fuel. There is enough deuterium, uh, let alone hydrogen, if you have hydrogen fusion, to run the power we have now for longer than this planet should be around. So that's the change. There is no bottleneck on that fuel anymore because it is such an abundant source. The next question is from Flip de Flutcuddle. Is pineapple a valid pizza topping? You know, if you'd asked me five or six years ago, I'd have said no. Uh, but uh, I've gotten really into artisan pizzas recently. Um, so what, we're down at Loello's and we had, uh, yeah. Um, they make some very good artisan pizzas at one of the local wineries here. I was going to say, if you didn't say yes, I was going to have to make you one with pineapple on oh, that's it. Right. Yeah, you know, okay, so I forgot my wife likes pineapple. I've actually decided that chicken and pineapple do have a place on pizza. Um, that, that was quite a, a venture for me because normally I was of the opinion that you got pepperoni, sausage, cheese, and certain vegetables and nothing else should be on a pizza. Uh, I've even opened myself with some of the weirder ones that don't have tomato sauce on them, though I don't know if they should really be called a pizza anymore at that point. So, yes, pineapple belongs on pizzas. <laughs> Not anchovies, though. There's no, 
no reason for the anchovy to ever be on a pizza. <laughs> oh, and sadism. Okay. Um, Zelkotic, uh, I'm sorry, I mangled that name. Zelkotovic says, what do you think about the interplanetary hydrogen ram engine? Um, I'm, I'm kind of assuming you're talking about a Busard ramjet or something similar there. And if that's the case, otherwise, uh, please send me a note to that afterwards so if someone's got a new interstellar ram engine design. The Busard ramjet uh, was the idea that if you're running on fusion fuel, you should be able to get a certain amount of energy out of whatever things you come across in space to just keep sucking them in and using them as you know your fusion source to push around. There's two problems with that. First, the actual method doesn't look like it turns out to be energy-bearing for how they were doing it. But you could still use a fusion reactor if you had one to do this. The thing is, you cannot go faster with that ship, the fusion reactor, than the amount of kinetic energy a particle hitting you would have compared to how much it would release. That's where you hit your drag point and have to stop speeding up. So in the case of a fusion reactor, we usually say you get, uh, call it that you're getting 0.1% of the energy, well, say, degenerate say 1% of the energy. 1% of the mass energy is going to let you get 10% of light speed. Uh, and that's the point at which you'd be hitting particles and they'd be giving you just as much energy as you were getting out of fusing them. You go down to 0.01%, uh, which would be fission levels, so like if you're running across uranium uh, atoms, and you're going to be at 1% of speed of light. So that can actually function. Um, now, you could do that with a black hole, for instance, too, especially if you've got a way of manipulating dark matter as cheap fuel, um, because those tend to run more like 40% of matter energy conversion. Then you're starting to talk about something more like running at... 50% of light speed, don't, don't, don't trust that number real quick, but a much better interstellar speed. Um, the Busard ramjet itself, though, it had problems with how it was designed to run, which was basically ramming the things at interstellar speeds into the fusion reactor to set the fusion off. So that model doesn't look like it works very well uh, to speed ships up. Quite to the contrary, it looks like it slows them down. However, that could be handy, too, because you need as much fuel to slow down as to speed up. Um, breaking in space is not free. So if you've got a Busard ramjet and it, all it does is slow you down when you turn on, that's actually useful. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have a thought chat or a super chat from Thought Criminal. What do you think of David Pierce and the idea of wire heading? Should we turn everything in our light cone into hedonium? Um, that's familiar, but I'm worried I'm going to mangle it trying to answer it. I'm going to guess hedonium is something else similar to computronium, but maybe that's matter based on the idea of converting all matter into something designed to give happiness or pleasure. Uh, if that's the case, then I don't know. I guess that would be uh, up to the individual, and I could be completely misreading that question. Um, but uh, yeah, that's about the extent of what I can give you as an answer on that one. Yeah, if someone would please message me a link about that afterwards, I'll give you a better answer. Cyber says, do you think skyhooks are the future of cheap space travel? If not, what do you think will be the technology that revolutionizes space travel? Uh, it all depends on what comes up as easiest, but uh, I think skyhooks have a role in it. I think that electrodynamically tethering ones that can regenerate their momentum between hooks is probably your best one. And so that would only really be useful on plants that have large magnetospheres, whereas other types of skyhooks might be very useful um, around plants that don't have atmospheres or magnetospheres, since you could just hook it right down against the planet and grab thing off the ground. Um, I don't think it's going to be as big a one. If you'd asked me five years ago, I'd have said yes, because a skyhook plus a hypersonic plane, an air breather like a scramjet, that's space travel right there. But we've had so much improvements with reusable rockets of late that I'm not sure there will ever be a period where those are particularly handy. 
we might just go from using reusable rockets to something really big like a mass drive or an orbital ring. So. We have another super chat from Morton Vanvik. Isn't our ability to see what's <coughs> happening outside our solar system very narrow since we're seeing back in time? Uh, Andromedia X is two and a half million light years away, so we have no idea what happened there in the last two and a half million years. The Andromeda galaxy is two some million light years away uh, and will collide with us in about three billion. Um, we don't know what's going on there today. We don't know what's going on in Mars, you know, uh, 10 minutes ago. It has got to us yet. Uh, astronomy is history. However, history is very long. Uh, you know, we say Andromeda is 2 million light years away, and that's on the assumption the universe is 13.7 billion years old. 2.5 million divided by 13.7 billion is what, like 1 5,000? So we're missing a little bit of the time there, but not that big a one in the grand scheme of things. Um, the further away you get, the, you know, the more back in time you are. But again, if you double the distance, you're doubling time backwards you are, but you're adding eight times as much to cubed as much value of things to look at. So you can actually statistically sample things like civilizations out that way. But in our galaxy, everything's within 100,000 years, you know, and uh, that's a long time for civilization. But against the estimated age of the universe, that's nothing. And against the estimated age of this planet, well, you know, that's nothing. So I don't think it really prevents us, but it is a hard ball on being able to look at current events as well. Zalzian asks, how big do you think <clears throat> factories will get in the early stages of established <clears throat> interplanetary civilization? Do you think moon-sized phone factories might pop up? Yes. Um, you know, there's a, a tendency we have in the computer era of saying that uh, miniaturization is the way, that everything's going to keep getting smaller and smaller. And to some degree, that's true, although people seem to ignore that while we said that, we've actually gotten bigger and bigger factories at the same time. They're just miniaturized while also getting bigger. Uh, to me, bigger is always better, uh, except for when it's not, but usually bigger is better. <laughs> and uh, I could actually see solar system-sized factories if it came down to it. You might decide that you want to produce an awful lot of, uh, well, we've got an episode coming up on phosphorus and the rarity of phosphorus in about a month and a half or so. And uh, one thing we talk about there is a way you might get around that is to mass produce the stuff. And of course, how do you mass produce phosphorus? Well, you make it out of silicon by blowing stars up, but you make it out of silicon by hitting it with neutrons, probably. So you might decide you're going to create a solar factory, a big stellar engine of the uh, you know, metal conversion type. If you're doing that, typically with things like fusion, your efficiency goes way up the bigger you go. A lot of things are like that. So miniaturization handy, and some things miniaturization is always be better for, but huge can also have a, an advantage too. Uh, quantity has a quality all its own. <laughs> Arthur Renato BB says, what do you think of biomolecular <clears throat> organic engineering of spacecraft and other structures, not excluding megastructures such as Dyson swarms? Void ecology. Um, last year we did an episode called Void Ecology and the uh, accompanying episode Space Whales. Uh, and uh, there we looked at the idea that you might start, if not actually creating organisms that were designed to live in the void. Um, engineering things that were effectively life forms, uh, you know, not carbon-based. And a couple months ago, we looked at non-carbon-based life, and we said we didn't think it was too likely to occur naturally, but you can make it. Um, you know, all you need is a self-replicating process of some sort, and that does not require what we'd say carbon and water and phosphorus and some other things you could do it differently. And I think you might find that that organic approach, that ecological approach, might be easier than a straight engineering approach to really big-scale engineering projects. So I think you could easily see 
creating something equivalent to big organic solar panels around the sun that were part of a food chain that delivered power, energy, and, and matter of production to places. We have a super chat from Louise Mora. Do you believe dark energy could be just the universe expanding in other dimensions and then making gravity work differently through time? Um, there is a notion that the reason why gravity is the weakest force, uh, so much weaker than the others, is because it's spreading itself across multiple dimensions. And that's a very core idea to most versions of string theory and brain theory, which is pretty similar or M theory. Um, you know, we look at the electromagnetic force, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force, and it goes strong nuclear force, and then like a little bit weaker nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and then way, way, way down there are billions of billions of billions of times weaker is the gravitational force, whereas the others are within about a hundred of each other. Um, could it be spreading itself across an you know, infinite number of parallel realities, alternate dimensions, things like that? If that is the case, uh, and if it is keyed into dark energy, which gravity and dark energy seem like they could easily be related in some fashion. And of course, it has a mysterious origin of coming from who knows where. You know, uh, Dark energy, say, outright is a violation of conservation of energy, but we've known that conservation of energy was violated at the uh, cosmic scale since uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, not locally, which is what the key thing is. So it could be connected, but the question is how do you prove it? And we really don't have the ability to do any experiments right now that would prove almost anything involving dark energy, let alone parallel realities. We have several questions here, also super chats from Thought Criminal. The first is, Isaac, what do you think are the odds that AI alignment problem will be successful? Also, have you read Eliezer Yudkowsky's Sequences? Um, some of you probably recognize Eliza Yukowski from uh, Less Wrong. He is the one who came up with the, well, actually, I don't know if he came up with it, but uh, the paperclip maximizer was an example of that, and the Roko's basilisk, or things that emerge from Less Wrong. Um, Roko's basilisk is the idea that you might have an AI that uh, um, weakly violates causality uh, by basically telling everybody that uh, if you don't help it out, it's going to torture you. It's going to resurrect you and torture you when you uh, when it comes into existence. So you have to work to help the AI come into existence in the first place, um, which is a very strange thought exercise, but that's Roko's basket. Let's look it up. Um, I don't really know. It's I've not read some of his more recent stuff, so I don't want to speculate too much on it, but usually when we're talking about trying to get AI into some sort of tight zone where it interacts with humans in what we think of as a human-ish psychology. Um, there's a lot of debate about self-learning ones if they ever do that. I tend to think that they would because to me there's only three ways you make an AI. You either program it from scratch, in which case it's exactly what you want it to be. You copy it from a template. We had a human mind or an animal mind. You start there and just tweak it a little bit, in which case very close to human mind. Or it's self-learning. Well, if it's self-learning, how much self-learning is it? Are you plugging into your databases? Do you give it Wikipedia? Say, oh, okay, there you go. Why would it think like a human? Well, all the information it's getting is from human sources, framed from a human narrative and perspective. So there's no guarantee that it would end up as a human that way, but I think it's a lot better than random with odds like that, so. Okay, and the following question was, what do you think of open individualism, such as the idea that we are all one consciousness, experience it in itself subjectively? Also, are you familiar with Daniel Kolak and Andre Gomez Emilson? I am not. Um, the 
I've heard that idea expressed before, and the one that comes to mind is uh, Ambassador Delenn from Babylon 5, that that was what the Mimbawi thought, great show by the way, uh, was that uh, the universe was, uh, or us, we were the universe experiencing itself. I don't tend to like ideas like that, um, but because uh, they're not really what I think of as being philosophically or theologically kind of grounded. They give a bit of circular arguments involved sometimes, but... Yeah, you know, it's a possibility, I suppose, and not one I really think of as uh, provable. So, The next Super Chat question is from Plastic Pinocchio. Could the average person born in a Western country in the year 2000 live to be 150 to 200 years old considering near midterm life extension technology? I hope so. Um, every so often people ask me what technology I most want to get invented during my lifetime, and I always say life extension. Uh, <laughs> I think that people who are born since this millennium began will probably live to see a period of time where people do not die when they're double digits and maybe just don't die from old age at all. You get the kind of what we call a takeoff speed, right? At what point are you speeding up the improvement of life extension so fast that you're going, you know, you're adding a year of life on faster than people experience a year of life. Um, I think we could be getting to that place. Right now, it's about one every six years. For every six years that's passed by in the last century, the average lifespan's gone up by about a year. That's then the rough average. Um, we need to get some more like one to one if we hit takeoff speed. But even if it's just to say two to one, you know, at that point you've lived an extra century, and that's fifty more years you get to experience the result of that. So I think that we all get to the point where that's probably true. I think people who are born this millennia will not die of old age during this century. We have another super chat from Brian Justice. Love the channel. What are your thoughts on the New York Times story about the government potentially releasing info about another world ship? If it's true, then how would your world and scientific views change? Um, you know, this comes up a lot of times with evidence of this or that uh, UFO. I'm going to say something that occasionally comes to mind with this. Most of the UFO conspiracy stuff revolves around people saying they don't trust the government as a source of information. Why would you suddenly then trust them if they were saying they might have found something? Um, but, you know, the evidence is not, it doesn't matter if the government says it does or not. It doesn't matter if an Air Force pilot says they do or not. Pilots are not any more reliable of software than, than anybody else. They're just very confident about it. Show me it in a lab. Show me pictures I can take apart in a lab and say that is exactly what that is. That's when it crosses the line into scientifically provable. Before that, if you believe it, you believe it. It's not that big a deal. You know, maybe you think that they're visiting us, maybe you don't. Proof, though, scientific proof, is a different level. And that's the context that I'm commenting to you guys from. So that's the standard I'm hoarding to. We have a couple more super chats here. Um, one from Dragonborn. Mm -hmm. Hey, Isaac, I'm curious. What do you believe will be the motivation for the first interstellar colonies? Will it be a collaborative effort, or will it be motivated by a dislike of their home cultures? That is hard to say. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that the first one probably will be a big collaborative effort because it's that first one. You know, uh, it might be one nation or group that's pushing for it, but that would be the big drive for the first interstellar colony will be to be the first people to plant a flag on the planet. After that, uh, especially if it's in later in solar development where you already have you know thousands of offworld bases in our solar system, I think that's when it start being more individual groups that decide they want to leave to be separate from our culture. Not necessarily in a hostile fashion, they just want the opportunity to be the, the second sons kind of thing. Right. And a super chat from Andre Jones. Do you think the answer to the Fermi, Fermi paradox is that the universe is filled with mostly microbial life? I kind of hope so, because I, I would hate to think that life is that, that rare a thing in some ways. But at the same time, um, 
I don't like to speculate too much on that. My hunch is that we're going to find a lot more life out there, um, but very simple life. But it might turn out that it's very barren too. Um, we don't know. We're going, we have to check. You know, that's the biggest thing with the Fobia Paradox. We only know about not even civilizations like ourselves. We only know about the absence of highly advanced civilizations, more advanced than us, more older than us, who also use our basic approach to the universe. That's the ones we can say don't, aren't around. So I'm going to take one or two more questions and call it a day. All right. We have a question here from Melancholy. With a fully automated economy where more people don't equal more stuff, what incentives would people have to have a higher population when more people just mean less resources for each person? Um, you know, there's a great book by Robert Zubin, uh, who you probably know from the case of Mars, called Motions of Despair, that a friend recommended to me. And he kind of talks about this idea. If you have finite resources, there does get to be a point where it becomes a bit of a zero-sum game to divide those around. But you have to remember, what is a resource? You know, we live on productivity. It's mostly productivity of the people. By and large, we've gotten more people. Our productivity per person has gone up, as has our standard of living. There is presumably a hard maximum on that somewhere. But I don't think we need to be putting that into the equation right now. I think that right now, more people in general, if it's slow growth, is to open a bit. Cole Nell asks, what could be the next step for computers other than quantum? Negative energy? Computers in parallel dimensions for space? Or something else? Ideally, computers that are capable of creating the next generation of computers, uh, ones that could actually help you design the next generation. Um, I think that we, just inside of known physics, quantum computing is probably the only one that's going to really break with the main system, though. All right. Uh, we got time for another question? Okay. Hapzidi Tide Midiwat says, I'm world building a sentient alien race that has medieval technology, but I want them to be as realistic as possible. Have you got any tips? Uh, when world building, I tend to suggest uh, looking at Sanderson's Laws of Magic. Uh, he's uh, Brandon Sanderson, great writer for fantasy and, and some sci-fi too. Uh, helps out a lot of folks in terms of writing what they are, just the general approach of trying to make it feel realistic, even when it's fantastic. And a lot of that is don't ever let it turn into a deus ex machina. You have to have a reason why they have that technology blend, that uh, techno primitivism blend. And actually, that's our episode coming up this, uh, this Thursday is Techno Barbarians. So we will talk about that a bit more there. One more question, we'll call it quits. Okay. Uh, the next one here is Mega Zolsti. How do you think humans and human civilizations will look like in 100,000 or more years if we don't turn ourselves into cyborgs or digital code in a big computer? I think if you've gone that route, you've probably decided you want to be pretty stationary with your existence, in which you might tend to see a lot of vintage culture around. You'd probably see all sorts of different ones, but you might have a certain tendency towards intentional stagnation of culture at that point in time, just because you've chosen not to, you know, personally, whether it's your chunk of the civilization or the entire civilization, you haven't decided to upload yourselves or put a computer chip in your head, etc. Um, but otherwise, I then think pretty much the same trends we have now. You know, what you see is cultures diversify as they spread out and, and, and uh, experience more time and place. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and uh, call it quits for the day. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you Thursday. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us, and again, if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below, and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also, you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you Thursday.